Welcome to the Insights podcast by UNSW Law Society. The production team would like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is made, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This episode is sponsored by Criminal Defence Lawyers Australia, an award-winning law firm of leading traffic and criminal defence lawyers who appear in the local district and Supreme Courts of New South Wales. The firm specialises in all criminal law cases involving, amongst other things, drug possession and importation, assault charges and fraud, with an exceptional track record of not guilty verdicts. Today we are at the Sydney office of Criminal Defence Lawyers Australia and are joined by their principal lawyer, Jimmy Singh. Jimmy has years of experience in the areas of criminal and traffic law and focuses on helping clients have their charges dropped at an early stage of their case. Notably and recently, he secured a not guilty verdict for a client accused of murder without needing to instruct counsel by uncovering critical evidence proving the client's innocence. We are also joined by Professor Alex Steele from the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW, who also holds the Senior Academic Position of Director, Teaching Strategy, providing strategic advice to the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic. He is a member of the Australian Law School Standards Committee, amongst many other roles in legal education associations and committees. He has also been a consultant to the New South Wales Attorney General's Department and made submissions to law reform agencies. Besides teaching, Alex's research interests in criminal law include the offences of larceny and fraud, topics on which he has published widely. Thank you, Jimmy and Alex, for joining us today. The podcast team this year are really excited to be able to combine perspectives from legal practice and academia because it is illustrative of the many different law paths students might consider after graduation. So what better way to start than by asking, what does a typical day in your line of work look like? Jimmy, I'll start with you. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, a typical day in uh, the life of a criminal defence lawyer. Well, I, I get up quite early in the mornings and one of the first things I do um, is I stretch. I think that's very important. Um, as you get older, you find that you have um, more, more back problems. Um, but um, I, at about five, five o'clock in the mornings, I'll get up, I'll, I'll do some stretching, I'll go to the gym, I'll spend about 45 minutes just to ground myself, um, have some breakfast, um, look on my, um, that's when I start looking on my, um, on my computer and my, um, my iPhone. And then I look at what's, what the day ha- uh, is ahead of me. Um, so I'll look at all that, sort out um, which matters are in what courts and, um, you know, I'll just, just organise myself for the, uh, for the day. Um, and then from there we'll just have meetings and court appearances and uh, everything in between. Um, by the end of the day, it's about 5, 5.30. I'll then reflect on the day and, and um, start planning for the next day in a very brief summary of what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that sounds great. Um, so you have a routine to sort of bookend your day, but anything in between is really dependent on the cases that you have on that day. It is. So we, ha- we have cases ranging from one... Um, court matter to 20 court matters in one day um, at different courts um, and some overlapping in the same courts. Um, So we assign matters of which lawyers are going to be appearing for what matters the day before and you're probably imagining how can how can five or six lawyers in one day attend 20 court matters in a day? Well Thanks to technology, we now can. Um, AVL appearances, um, email appearances. Um, if there's one positive thing that has come out of COVID, and I like to look at positive things instead of focusing on negative things, because there's lots of negative things we can focus on because of COVID, it's, it's that um, it's time, a lot of time has been saved. Um, and that allows clients' time to be put to better use in us being able to spend more time on their cases and quality time instead of staggering how much time we spend on a case one hour in in, in a day and then another hour the next day or three hours another day so there's a lot of positive 
things that's that's come out of that um, in terms of technology. Yeah, and Alex, as as a lecturer of the law faculty, um, what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so I've got um, probably two quite distinct typical days. So if if it's a teaching day, um, then there's um, staying up late the night before, reading all the cases, getting my head around it, getting distracted by all the really interesting trivia around it. So I've got something fun to say in class, um, which does sort of affect time management when you're teaching. But I'm just trying to sort of get my head into into it all and, and be prepared and um, and then then teaching. And I think when you're if you're teaching two hours of teaching is it's it's like a performance and so you're absolutely shattered afterwards. So if you're doing two hours or four hours of teaching then you try to find something fairly mindless, um, administrative to do after that to sort of to get back into things. Um, but in my director role, um, you know, particularly with COVID, I'll, I'll now will get up in the morning, I'll walk the dog and I'll sit in front of the computer and I'll have Teams meetings that just go from back to back to back all day and it is just endless um, meetings, um, which takes a bit of getting used to but the, the really interesting thing about that is like Jimmy's saying it's it's so much more efficient now not having to move from place to place that the downside of that is that you miss out on the little fun meetings and sort of chance encounters in between when you actually find out what's going on so everything is much more formal and um, work oriented so there's there's pluses and minuses to to the much greater use of technology Yes, definitely. I think everyone would have found that once we moved things online, especially classes, um, some people roll out of bed still in their pyjamas and they log on to their 9am's. Um, but it definitely makes it um, more flexible for everyone as well. Um, and so what is an aspect of your role that you find most rewarding or challenging or both? Um, rewarding and challenging. Uh, there's lots of things. I mean, um, helping people. Um, the extent of how much I can see that we are helping people, I've never would have been able to understand prior to practicing um, as a lawyer. So we see people come in here from all, all various forms of um, places from, um, from life, um, from taxi drivers to CEOs um, to even lawyers. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, you know, Sorry, what was, what was the question again? The most rewarding or challenging? The rewarding and challenging part of that. Yeah, so we see them come in. Some are guilty, some are not. Um, particularly the ones that are guilty, they put their hands up and, you know, they want to they want to they want to have their matter dealt with and move on in life. Um, and what I find is what's very common in people that do commit offences is generally speaking there is or generally speaking there's usually an underlying mental health issue um, and that is something that is so prevalent um, that people people who don't work in the practice of law or study law won't really understand um, and those people who are suffering these kinds of mental health issues now that's not a justification for what why they did what they did it's 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 an it's an explanation for why they did what they did and that's really important to be able to find an explanation so that you can then f find out what the contributing factors are to the offending behaviour. So then once you find out what the contributing factors are to, to the offending behaviour, you're able to then try to work out on a solution to reduce the uh, prospects of that person reoffending. And that is one of the main purposes of punishment that a judge or magistrate looks at. And when you're able to do that and address those contributing factors, um, to the offending behaviour, that reduces then the, um, the chances of re-offending, which reduces the sentence for the purposes of um, prospects of rehabilitation, for the benefit not just the individual, but for the community as a whole. And I think that's quite rewarding when you see that actually. So that's why we have alternative forms of um, punishment or, or so on. So we don't go to imprisonment straight away because we believe on the re rehabilitation prospects of a particular individual. Yeah, and that's one of the main purposes, one of the main purposes of punishment. And that's why they actually ended up changing the, um, the Sentencing Act, the Crime Sentencing Act, um, um, to focus a lot more on uh, rehabilitation. So there's two forms of imprisonment. One is full-time jail and the other one is an alternative to full-time jail, but it is a jail sentence called an Intensive Corrections Order, ICO. 
And one of the main focuses and main purposes of that ICO um, penalty is rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, and so, Alex, what would be a challenging or rewarding part of your role? Oh, look, I mean, I think, um, you know, I've been teaching for years and years and every time you go into a classroom, it, it, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's one of, I think, one of the few jobs where you get instant feedback. Um, you say something and you can just see on people's faces whether they got it, whether, they, whether they're bored, whether they're engaged. So it's, it's an amazing feeling to be able to, to as Jimmy was saying, it's, it's all about helping people. So it's about um, helping people to see more clearly the, the things that they were confused about at, at the beginning of the class. So incredibly rewarding being able to help people see that. And I think with teaching, it's not really about actually teaching them the law itself, but it's, it's um, sort of opening up um, the possibilities for ways of thinking and seeing the world and for understanding the way other people experience the world through the um, through the sort of the the examples that are in the cases so a huge amount of um, personal satisfaction I think comes through teaching and in the director role it's that but at a much sort of higher sort of um, level in that you are helping other people to to sort of um, improve the way in which um, the university helps students learn and 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 I think one of the most amazing things is just to see year after year how how engaged and bright and um, sort of um, frankly scarily clever all of the students are and the huge passion that the staff have across the university for sort of helping everybody to achieve their best. Yeah, and teaching strategy is very important, especially when it comes to um, law where you have to discuss the concepts and how the concepts are implied, uh, applied in a practical context. Um, and so that's the main things I think that drew me to UNSW Law because of the unique teaching style um, that we have. So that has really helped a lot of students, I think. Um, and Alex, you teach criminal law courses with a focus on understanding various criminal offences in the Crimes Act um, and also the elements that make up each offence. In terms of the weight that is given to the study of certain offences over others, how does the content reflect the occurrence or prevalence of such offences uh, in reality? It's a really good question um, and the answer is it doesn't. Um, so if you think about um, the traditional approach to teaching criminal law, the focus has always been on the elements of murder. That, that's always been the starting point and then you go on to the other offences if you've got time. So murder and defences are eff effectively some of the rarest, they're the most serious, but they're some of the most, uh, the rarest offences in, um, in, particularly in the local courts. So what a criminal law course is often really trying to do is it's looking at the most serious offences for which there's the most case law because you can then use the way in which the judges think through the meaning of the offences to get an understanding of how to approach interpretation of offences yourself. But I think I think Jimmy's going to tell us in a moment that when you get into practice most of the offences you're dealing with don't have cases so you've sort of got to make it up for yourself. Um, so getting the balance right between those really sort of significant um, intellectually important and complex offences and the ones that um, are really sort of bread and butter in in courts is, is an ongoing, I think, issue. And, and the best example of that is probably drug offences. So we're lucky in that we've got enough space to be able to teach a class or two on drug offences, but we only really scratch the surface. But um, in the last couple of decades, drug offences has become one of the most significant and complex areas of law um, at both New South Wales and Commonwealth level, but yet law schools really don't have the time to grapple with that. So, so criminal law in law schools is really giving you the basic understanding of what the core concepts are, but it's really um, in electives or when you get into practice that you have to sort of expand um, and understand that in practice. Yeah, and I think that's also reflected in um, Crim 1, so the, the law course that we have in the first criminal law course um, that UNSW students have. Um, where we first start with looking at the concept of triviality and of the local courts. Um, I think before that, a lot of students don't realise how significant um, the caseload is in local courts in comparison to higher courts, which is where most of the, the case law that we look at comes from. Um, so I think that's the distinction there between what is actually taught in class and also what actually happens in um, real life. Um, and so, Jimmy, mm -hmm. on that point, newest up 
New South Wales law schools don't often have specific courses on traffic offences or drug law, yet those are the main areas of your practice. So from the perspective of a practising lawyer, do you think students should be given a broad overview of criminal law or would it be better to focus on more specific core concepts um, and should there be a change in the focus of the law school curriculum perhaps? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think the best approach would be a more of a general overlook approach first because if you don't get the fundamentals right, it's hard to understand very specific aspects of criminal law. And when you look even at specific aspects of criminal law, um, it all goes back to the foundation, the, the fundamentals. So there's the mens reis, there's the actus reis, there's the potential defences, including mental health defences and stuff like that. So I think being able to have a, a good solid understanding of that those fundamentals is the first starting point. Once you understand that, then you could start delving into more specific aspects. And I think you know it's, um, law schools have more specific subjects like this. This criminal, crim, I'm not sure if UNSW have this, but there's criminal. Is there criminal law as a subject specifically as well? Yeah, there's that, that. I don't know if there's drug law, but I don't. Is, there is, is there? Um, I mean, that, that's probably a good thing because it's an increasing, as Alex said, it's an increasing area and it's becoming more and more complex, just as much as fraud uh, in last years. Um, so I think being able to have the fundamentals right first, it should be a prerequisite before you can actually go into and delve into the more specific aspects of it. Right. Um, and how would you, would you say your current practice has changed your understanding of criminal law since you started practice? My understanding of it since I've started practice. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, look, you're always going to learn how to apply the law to the facts. And you're gonna refine that skill the more and more you go to court, the more you prepare matters. Because in, as criminal lawyers, we're actually in court pretty much every single day. And we're always applying fa um, law to uh, facts um, of a case. So, the most fundamental thing that I've learnt, um, and I think that if anyone can take away from, from this podcast, would be communication skills. And when I say communication skills, that doesn't mean being able to clearly, comprehensively explain things to a client or to a court. It goes beyond that. It, it goes to the point of um, communicating with your clients, keeping an adequate level of communication with them. Because if you don't keep an adequate level of communication with your clients, you got to understand these people are going through very tough periods in their life as it is. By having minimal contact, they have no idea what their lawyer is doing. They have no idea what's happening with their case. So it's really, really, really important to keep an adequate level of communication. Let them know that, hey, mate, I've been working on your matter since this morning. You know, things are going along. It's okay. We're doing our very best. Okay, do you have any questions? That would make that person's, that client's week, if not day. And, and it, it also causes less reason for a client to be agitated and annoyed, you know? Um, and, and so one of the most important things is communication. So communication with clients, communication with um, your colleagues as well. So, you know, letting, you know if, there's a, if there's a legal issue that you're having some issues with after doing your research and you just want to get a second opinion, which is quite important, um, speak to your colleagues, um, you know, have a team meeting about it and then let the client know, look mate, I've just had a team meeting about your case, we're working on, on your case as a team. So that really, you know, communication is the most fundamental, most important thing which I don't think universities really focus on um, as part of a law degree. So that's definitely something that you pick up through a lot of practice and understanding what your clients really want from um, a lawyer. And I think that that is one of the most important things that I look at as well in a candidate. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a fundamental thing, just not in law, but in life. <laughs> Communication skills is so important. Definitely. Um, and what recommendations would you give to a law student trying to find out what they're passionate about? Oh, how to find what your passion is. Uh, my, wife, my wife says to me I'm so lucky that, um, that I've found something that I'm so passionate in because uh, she's in IT, so what she does, she's like, look, I, you know, I'm happy doing it, but I'm not as passionate as you are. And I never realised that until probably later on in my career. 
until someone pointed it out to me. So how to find your passion, that's a tough one. Um, I think you just got to dig deep and, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be in your university days to figure out what your passion is. You could figure out what your passion is when you're 50. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think that's more of a subjective thing. It depends on what you're really interested in doing. What, what really makes you happy um, in life? So I really like doing criminal law. I, I love it. I love the, the, the diverse nature of it. Um, I love being able to help people and make a difference in the community at the same time. And it's challenging. It's never, it's never really, it's never boring. So I really love that aspect to it. Um, so that's how, I mean, I don't know how I, I guess what sparked my interest in criminal law would have probably been at university when I did, when I studied um, criminal evidence and procedure. Um, you know, I love the, uh, the nitty-gritty of the Evidence Act and arguing and, and all that kind of stuff where you can actually make a difference um, and you could have an intelligent argument, you know, with a judge or a magistrate or even with colleagues. So that sparked my interest. So I think the best thing to do to figure out what you want to really do uh, to find your passion is just to think about it and figure, out, figure it out. Um, you know, work at different places if you have to and figure out what you like doing. And, you know, it'll eventually come to you. Yeah. Um, and Alex, what would you have as advice to students on this front? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I look at my career and almost everything has been a mistake or an accident. Um, I don't, I never, I would never have imagined when I was in first year that I would end up where I am. And I think it's just um, opportunities come along and you just take them. And, um, and it's also really helpful if you've got people around you saying, no, actually, you should go for that job. But, um, I tend to have to be told to apply for a new job because um, I tend to be just happy doing what I'm doing and then someone says, well, actually, you should try that. So so I think having a supportive network around you is incredibly important and just being open to opportunities and, um, yeah, not, not not being afraid to fail is probably the, the easiest way because you'll, you'll very quickly find out whether you don't like something and then, you know, being brave enough to say, actually, it's not really what I want to do. I'll, I'll try something else. Is um, but yeah, um, it it just sort of. It, I had no idea that I was going to be fascinated by criminal law when I started uni, and I you know I left uni. I worked in a big corporate law firm and did media law, um, and somehow managed to get from that to criminal law. So it it's just you know it's just what happens. Could you explain a bit more about how you went from corporate law into criminal law? Uh, so um, the. Well, uh, the, the simple answer is I was, um, w I was sitting around um, on a Saturday morning looking at the, you know, you guys may not know about these things, but there used to be newspapers and they had classified ads in them. Um, and we were sitting looking at the classified ads for a flatmate who was working in a, um, in a big corporate law firm doing lots of discovery work for tobacco companies and hating it. So I was looking for jobs for her and I found a job as an associate lecturer and said, you should go for that. Um, that'll get you out and she said no no uh, you should and I went no nah, no and I, I, I threw I threw the ad away and then I went hunting for it and applied the last day and got the job so it, it, that's that's sort of and but that was teaching business law and commerce and then um, the next sort of uh, issue was well if I wanted to not just teach the first year course I would have to develop my own elective so we went out to the accounting firms and said what would you like us to teach and they said, well, actually, the one thing no one ever teaches is fraud. Could you put an elective together for fraud? And so I came into criminal law completely backwards. I came from an accounting fraud perspective into criminal law um, and then discovered that, you know, that was my happy place. That's where I should have been years ago and, and um, moved from business law to the law school, built a sort of a research career around criminal law and then discovered actually the teaching was just as exciting as the, as the criminal law. And now I'm focusing more on the teaching side of it than the research so it's and it just moves it's it's you, your career just changes every couple of years and sometimes the job doesn't change but what you're actually doing in it can change a lot yeah that's really interesting but I think it also shows that um, different areas of law are so interconnected that you can just sort of flow into another one and it becomes very natural um, so yeah that's that's quite interesting how you moved from corporate law into criminal law can I just add what Alex said about sure. not being afraid to fail, I think that's a very, very important, um, important thing to keep in mind is you're, you're going to have to fail to be able to succeed. 
and you know don't be deterred from failing you know even if it's from applying to positions and trying to get a job you're gonna be rejected many times and you might be one of those very few lucky people that get it straight away that's great but just assume you will be rejected but it's perseverance keep going and keep that positive attitude that that's where doors open um, and I just want to emphasize that because I think that's so important and that's got me to where I am because I couldn't have got I can't get to where I am unless I've failed numerous times and learned from each time um, and that's how you learn yeah that's also really important because I think um since all law students are so high achieving and they've probably been high achievers their whole life, it's quite difficult to accept failure sometimes. So that's something, um, that's an important lesson to learn. Um, Alex, the law is such a broad discipline. So how did you decide which areas, apart from fraud, um, of criminal law to focus your research on? Well, I mean, as as an academic, you have this enormous um, luxury that almost nobody, no other job has, where you sort of get to pick what's interesting. Um, and I, one of the things that really fascinates me, um, my other degree was history, so I love history as well. And um, you know, law is basically um, historical research because everything is precedent based. So um, property offences have some of the longest histories of cases all the way back, back to the Middle Ages, and there are these amazingly bizarre fact scenarios. And and um, so it's it's a really fascinating area to to get involved in. And it's, it's also a fairly safe area because it, you're talking about property offences, you're not talking about extreme violence. So while it's very important, um, I think that we really sort of recognise that the harms that are caused um, in, in violence offences in particular, um, there are harms in property offences, but they're not as severe. But the, the other thing too that's really fascinating about property offences is it's not just criminal law. You have to understand property law because unless you know what property is in the law, you can't work out whether or not somebody owns something or whether something's been taken. So it has this level of complexity that um, sometimes scares people at the beginning, but there's just always more to to see and to work out. Um, And then you can add corporate structures into it. So it's, yeah, it's, there's, there's a, there's, it's amazing how um, many areas of property offences still don't have a settled decision, even hundreds of years later. Um, And also the law is seen as reactive rather than proactive most of the time, which can be a barrier to its effectiveness. So in your time as a a policy officer and consultant to the Attorney General's department, what types of considerations were most important to the Criminal Law Review Division? Um, And so did these considerations lean towards making some offences harder to defend? Yeah, it's a a really interesting question because we've got law reform commissions, which undertake really thoughtful um, investigations of, of complex areas of law, take submissions and, and so forth. But then there are things that pop up that require a quick political solution. And so the the advisors in the Attorney General's Department are the people who were given those sort of um, timeframes of you know sometimes six months, sometimes only a couple of weeks to come up with a new offence to deal with an issue. And there's there are conflicting pressures um, Obviously, there's a prosecution um, uh, sort of approach, which is we know that these people um, are guilty, so you need to make the law as simple as possible so that we can convict them because, you know, the society requires everybody be locked up. And then there's the other approach, which is to say, well, first impressions aren't always right. You might think that this is a, these people are committing offences, but in fact, there may actually be underlying reasons for why they're doing it. As Jimmy said, lot sort of mental illness is, is a key aspect here. So trying to make sure that the balance is right in the way in which you draft the legislation so that it, it's sort of, in a sense, fair to both sides. Um, and that... And then that has to be washed through the political imperatives of the of the government of the day and, and what they are trying to um, de- provide for their voters. So it, it's a it's absolutely fascinating period because um, things sometimes um, sometimes you have to make decisions within hours. Sometimes you have a lot of time to think about it. Um, but as a as a policy advisor, you're suggesting something. At the end of the day, the decisions are political decisions. So yeah, so it. It depends on, it really does depend on the government and the Attorney General um, and often the Police Minister as well as to how legislation is put together, when it's announced and what promises are made. 
And Jimmy, has there been any particular reform that has stuck out to you as being a little bit um, difficult at first to tackle? Uh, difficult. Oh, there has been so many. I just can't think of any particular one uh, on top of my head right now. I mean, there's uh, Dolly impact, uh, impacts at the moment. That's an issue. Um, there's this issue about um, being able to use um, a, 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 a complainant's in sexual matters, a complainant's past history of um, alleged false sexual accusations to either the same accused person or in, in regards to a different accused person at the moment under the Criminal Procedure Act, um, a complainant, even though a complainant has made false sexual assault claims, whether it's the same accused person or a different accused person, because it's considered um, a historical um, uh, sexual history of that complainant, it's precluded in evidence, um, which otherwise, in my view, it should be taken into account relevant to the complainant's credibility. And this can make a big difference between an accused person who may well, or is presumed innocent, being found guilty or actually found not guilty and being locked up if found guilty for a long time. So these, th th these are challenges that need to be addressed. Yeah, so as a follow-up question to that, do you think there's anything in the Evidence Act, especially the more contentious parts, um, for example hearsay evidence, credibility evidence, that you think should have a bit more reform? Oh, hearsay, that's 65, Evidence Act, credibility issues as well. I mean, the credibility issue is the one I've just explained. I think in terms of being able to reduce evidence, it has to be relevant. So if it's going to be relevant for purposes of you reducing it uh, to attack a, a witness's credibility, then you should be able to use it. But that there's a particular, I forget the name of the section in the Criminal Procedure Act, that precludes... Um, sexual history of a complainant so you're not allowed to use it even though it's highly relevant to the credibility of what the complainant's saying against the person that's presumed innocent. Um, I hope that answers the question. Yeah okay sure. Um, let's talk about a specific crime now so perhaps one might think of larceny when the topic of criminal law is mentioned. In New South Wales a person convicted of larceny is liable to five years imprisonment under section 117 of the Crimes Act and interestingly New South Wales is the only Australian jurisdiction that relies on common law precedent to define the elements of larceny. So Alex, you've written extensively about the elements of larceny, specifically dishonesty and possession. How difficult is it to create a bright line test for the mens rea aspects of this offence? Yeah, that's a, that is a, it, there's a nice segue between that question back to the Attorney General's um, drafting legislation. So there has been hundreds of years of attempts by law reform commissions to define the elements of, of stealing. Um, the, the advantage, if you like, of the New South Wales larceny offence is that there is no bright line definition. There's a lot of cases. And so it allows you in a case to, to be able to you know, fashion where that boundary is depending on, on um, the circumstances. But the drawback to that, of course, is that there's no one simple place to go to know what the law is, which makes it inaccessible for many people. It makes it um, difficult to run um, de um, defences, really, if the magistrate isn't following you through the sort of very complicated history of, of um, precedent cases. So it probably needs reform. Um, you know, the fact that the rest of the common law world has actually codified um, stealing offences and New South Wales hasn't is probably a, a, an indication of that. But um, the one of the real difficulties in, in, in this area isn't actually defining the edges of the offence itself, it's the fact that property is so complicated. So who owns what, what is and what isn't property um, is actually what leads to the complexity of the offence, not the offence itself. So it's it's a bit of an intractable problem, I think. But having said that, I think in you know ninety nine percent of the cases, it's pretty obvious somebody took something and it wasn't theirs. So you're straight into um, excuses and and mitigations. So perhaps that's why it hasn't been codified yet, because the current law has worked to a great extent so far. Yeah, look, and I think too the the other thing, particularly at sort of local court level, New South Wales still has um, prosecutions run by police. So because we have a police-based prosecution approach, it's the understanding that the police service have of what the law means rather than what the law actually says. So if, if there's a police training approach to larceny which makes sense to the police, then they're not in a big hurry to want to change the law. 
Definitely. Um, Jimmy, when larceny is argued in practice, is there a certain element that the prosecution focuses their efforts on, or does it greatly vary among the cases that you've seen? Um, they have to always prove the essential elements of the offence. So larceny, um, both actus reus and mens reus, you, you're looking at, um, what is it, uh, you, it, ha it must be, the prosecution has to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the accused had uh, taken and carried away a property belonging to someone else without consent, then they need to prove the mens reus elements of it, which is that person, the accused, had the uh, took it away with the intention of permanently depriving the owner thereof, uh, with uh, uh, what was it, uh, dishonesty, and without a claim of right. So a claim of right is a potential defence to larceny. So, you know, if, a, if, if an accused person or the evidence um, is adduced to the effect that the um, accused believed he or she had a legal right to the property, um, even if they're wrong, um, or even if it's not well-founded, um, as long as they don't believe it's a moral right that they had, that's a defence to a larceny. So it depends on what evidence comes out um, in court in a hearing. If the issue in dispute is really going to be um, claim of right, then the prosecution is required to, once that's, that evidence is raised, negate it beyond reasonable doubt. Now, on, on, with other types of cases for larceny, um, issues may be that um, whether or not there was actually um, something like possession, possession of property. And, and as Alex was saying, it, you know, the law is quite complex with that because it relies on case law. Cases like He Corte, High Court of Australia, refers to uh, possession, which is um, knowingly having the physical custody or the physical control of it to the exclusion of others, not acting in concert. Um, so, and then other issues about whether the prosecution is trying to allege that it's joint possession or it's ex exclusive possession. And that goes into much more complicated areas of law, circumstantial evidence. So, um, yeah, look, um, it really depends on what the evidence is at the end of the day. Is there any particular case that you remember, um, a matter that you have worked on that stood out to you as being quite interesting in the area of larceny? Oh, I mean, it, you, you become quite desensitised to what is, um, <laughs> what stands out and what doesn't stand out. <laughs> um, I've been doing this for over 13 years. Um, so not particularly, no. I mean, there's been all sorts of things people take from money to sex toys. Um, so really, to be quite honest with you, it's just a broad range of things. Interesting. Um, so Alex, in your journal articles, Taking Possession, The Defining Element of Theft, and also The True Identity of Australian Identity Theft Offences, you note that the element of possession in larceny is a crucial distinction between the New South Wales formulation and other Australian jurisdictions. So based on your research in this area, what consequences do you think this would have on the operation of the offence to developing areas of the law, such as intangible property? Um, for example, NFTs, which are gaining in popularity recently. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So because we've got um, the common law offence of larceny, which was developed effectively in the Middle Ages, there was no real notion of intangible property. So it is based around um, things that you can pick up and carry away. So it, you cannot use larceny for any form of um, digital wealth or sort of forms of intangible property such so as in action. All of those things can't be covered under the larceny offence. Other jurisdictions in Australia have defined property to include intangible property, um, which means that the theft um, offence covers all of that, but it raises other questions about how you actually fit um, notions of ownership and so forth in, into that offence. In New South Wales, because you don't have... Um, intangible property in the larceny offence, you have to go to the fraud offences. And that then means that you stretch the fraud offences to um, um, cover things that really aren't frauds, but that's the only way you can get to this notion of financial advantage. Once you get into the financial advantage area, anything, so uh, you, know, you wouldn't even need, for example, to, to prove that an NFT was a form of property. All you'd have to show is that somebody is somehow financially better off as a result of doing something with that NFT that the other person didn't um, 
didn't want them to do. So you, you have to show that they, they don't have a right to do it, but you've got a lot more flexibility with notions of financial advantage than you do with notions of property and larceny. Is financial advantage an objective test, or is that so, for example, someone takes an NFT, but they don't have the um, the purpose of taking it was not to gain an advantage, they just wanted to deprive someone else of that. Would that fall under a fraud offence as well? So the fraud offence cuts both ways. So there's a version of the fraud offence is where you take it with intent, with intent to gain financial advantage, and the other version is where you take it with intent to cause financial loss. So it, it covers both. And, and the intent thing is actually a really good point you make because the person at the end of the day shouldn't ever end up with a financial advantage because the court will order them to give it back. So what we're always looking at in these property offences is what was the person intending to do at the time they did the act because they always mean to get away with it and the fact that they're in court means they haven't got away with it. So they're not going to keep the property and they're not going to get the financial advantage. So we're punishing them for what they were hoping to do. Yeah. Um, and Jimmy, while we're on the topic of developing areas of criminal law, how has your practice in criminal defence changed due to technology? Oh, I think I've touched on this a little earlier. It's changed a lot. Um, and I think Alex has also mentioned the same. I mean, we're spending a lot less time travelling, which allows us to spend more time on cases, um, prepare, preparation, spend more time on communicating uh, with our clients. Um, so it's changed significantly um, a lot because um, we have matters ranging from one court matter to 20 court matters in one day. Um, they're one of the main ways we're able to keep up with that kind of uh, fast-paced environment is to be able to appear um, in court via AVL um, and, and um, email appearances as well, which the courts are allowing. And that's all the reason because of COVID. So it's reduced a significant amount of travel times, um, allows us to appear in court in multiple different courts from the one area in a day um, and reduces clients' cost, which is great. But would you say there's anything um, in the current state of things that you think um, is not as ideal as before we use technology this much. What do you mean? So, um, so there's a lot of AVL happening. Before that, they probably would only use it if it was like a really necessary thing to do. Um, so do you think that there are disadvantages to using technology to this extent? Oh, there are. I mean, the tri some trials have, have been attempted to be conducted uh, via AVL. And you get a lot of um, a lot of technical issues, and I think the courts' technology are not up to speed with it. To be quite frank with you, um, you know, you're, you're doing hearings or trials, and the judge can't hear some of the things that the counsel's saying. And I was just reading a um, a CCA, a Court of Criminal Appeal uh, matter that we have at the moment. I'm reading the transcript in it, and it was it was a sentence proceeding. Um, for a dangerous drive occasioning grievous bodily harm. And when I'm reading the transcript, uh, which took a while to get because of the COVID and, the, and the, the backlog and the delays, but once I got it and I'm reading it, the first two or three pages is all about the technical difficulties the judge is having in being able to listen and hear clearly what counsel for the defence is saying. What a waste of time. So, um, yeah, look, I think the technology needs to be um, um, sorted. Um, it needs to be much more efficient, much more reliable. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but other than that, you know, the other positive signs are the, only the fact that um, we're able to do more, more quicker matters, like mentions and matters that, that are going to be adjourned where the court needs to be updated. Those things can keep carrying along in a more efficient way. Um, trials, cross-examination in court via AVL is almost impossible to do. You know, you need to be very well organised from the start. You need all the documents that you want a witness to have a look at. You know, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to produce all those documents that, you, that you'd otherwise intend to surprise the prosecution in when you don't need to disclose it in the, in, the, in the first place? Provide that in advance and then ask the witness to have a look at it at certain occasions while you're cross-examining them through an AVL screen. So there's a lot of barriers that just don't work. That's the other second aspect to it. I think the third most fundamental aspect to it is the human aspect to it, being personable. Um, as advocates, you know, we are trained and you need to persuade the judge or persuade um, witnesses. You know, the way we advocate, the way the cross-examination process, you need to be able to do that. And I think it's not nowhere near as effective 
as doing that in person. You know, seeing the per person face to face, looking at their reactions. That, you, that witness's reaction may change not only the way you deliver the next question, but it may change the next question entirely. And this is something that you can't really gain from an AVL screen. Especially with the technological lag or something. The lag, everything. Just, it just doesn't work that well. Yeah. Um, and what do you think criminal defence lawyers should do to adapt and prepare for these changes? Criminal defence lawyers? I think the courts need to adapt to the technology. Um, uh, criminal defence lawyers, I think we're, I mean, we're ready. We're, we're doing it. We're doing it as much as we can. I mean, we have even here in this meeting room, we've got a, uh, a TV um, inbuilt with a with HDMI cable that pops up from the middle of the, of the, of the conference room, connect it straight into a computer, and you're able to do AVL appearances in court. Literally, we're having, we have court appearances in our offices. Um, so I think that I think criminal defence lawyers, I think all lawyers, not just criminal defence lawyers, are, are well equipped to be able to deal with it. It's just a matter of whether, on the other end, it's efficient enough without interruption. Um, but I think, I think AVL appearances and all that kind of stuff is only great and efficient to reduce costs from not only clients, but costs for the courts and everyone is if it's for small matters, like mentions, that's going to be adjourned. For, for hearings and sentences and things like that, I think it's important to be there physically. Yeah. And Alex, do you think the law school curriculum might prepare students for practice or research or other legal-related avenues, given our rapidly changing times? I think it, it's, a, it's a really tricky um, thing to answer because um, the technology changes all the time. And the um, so the software solutions, if you like, change all the time. So it's it's not particularly helpful to um, build a curriculum around teaching people to do things by a particular sort of software method. But on the other hand, it's really important for people to be able to cope with the change and um, to get. So I think the most important thing a curriculum has to do is to make sure that it's open enough to to what's happening, so that. Um, everybody who goes through that curriculum learns to be able to adapt to things. So I think, you know, that much as COVID's been horrible for, for people, um, we've now got a, a generation of students who are absolutely adept at flicking on a computer screen in their bedroom and pretending to be awake and professional. You know, so we, we have, we've, we've got a generation of people who are just now sort of native in that sort of online environment and that's going to be hugely beneficial to the legal profession who have really frankly struggled some of the, some of the you know, as Jimmy was saying, the courts have, have struggled to, to adapt that quickly but the students graduating will be fine. So, so I think much as these sort of things sort of are destabilising, it's the skills that you learnt through them that are, that are the key things I think. Yeah, and finally a question for you both. What do you think is one key thing that students should remember as they navigate law school? Do you want to, do you want to take this one first? All right, I'll go first. Um, I think, um, so the, the best thing to, my, my, my advice would be um, try, to, try to look at what you remember from the exams you did in first year. And the answer is probably not much. But what you learnt that you will never forget is how to think, how to write, how to read, how to engage with people, as Jimmy was saying, how to communicate. They're the skills that you're learning. And you, as you go through each subject, even though the subject doesn't seem to be a subject you're ever going to use in practice, or you may even, in fact, never become a lawyer, it's all sort of grist to the mill. It all actually helps you to build that bigger picture of how it all fits together. So it's, it's building frameworks um, in the knowledge and it's building the skills to navigate through them and then be, to be ready for anything really. So it, it's in lots of ways, you know, they talk about sometimes the half-life of knowledge, that um, knowledge fades quickly after you've done um, tests and exams. But what doesn't fade is the skills that, that you develop through it. So to me, law schools, and it's not just about what happens in the classroom, it's the whole, you know, it's getting involved in the law society, getting involved in all the other curricular activities, learning to get to know people you've never known before, different life situations. Um, it's, it is the best, it is the, the only time in your life where you have that safety and that ability to really reinvent yourself if you want to experiment to, there's safety nets all around you. So it's, um, I, I would just say, grab it with both hands and try to spend a bit more time on uni and less doing paralegal work.
because if you spend the five or six years working flat out in a law firm, they won't thank you at the end. But if you've spent the five or six years actually learning to be a good lawyer, they'll employ you. Yeah, that's really impactful. Thank you. Um, Jimmy? So I'll keep it really simple, as simple as possible. There's three main things that I'd say to keep in mind. The first is communication skills, and I'm not going to go into that any much more than what Alex already has. Um, the second thing is be honest, um, and that includes be honest in terms of um, you know your ethics as well. So when you when you become a lawyer, you need to make sure that you don't cross the line, you know, for your client or colleagues or anyone, all right? Because you don't want to burn bridges. Being honest, you know, they say honesty is the best policy. It absolutely is. In the long run, you will be rewarded for it from the universe one way or another. Um, so those two things are the most important, one of the most important things. The third, just as important in my view, is the sustainability of being a lawyer. It's a very high pressure job. Um, you know, there's a lot of demand in it. Um, uh, you know, there's a high, there's a high um, prevalence of mental health issues in the legal profession. That's a big, big issue. And a lot of young, young lawyers that come through um, the funnel, they often do get quite burnt out. You know, they get, they work like crazy hours and you know, they're not gonna be appreciated really for it. So, so it, you need to, if you're gonna do that, all right, you need to be sustainable. So the best thing to do is look, look after yourself, look after your body, look after your mind. Um, one way, I mean, I learned this later on in my career, one of the, one of the best things I do, and it, for everyone will be different, I exercise four days a week. I, you know, I mentioned at the start, I get up in the morning, I do my stretches, I go to the gym, it might, for someone else, it might be meditation. It might be some other kind of activity, soccer, cricket, basketball, whatever it is. Just do something. Um, that'll allow you to sustain what you do because you will otherwise get burnt out and it will have other issues. And, and being able to be at your best you know, in the profession that you choose to be, you will not be able to function at your best if you don't also look after yourself to be sustainable in your career. So that's probably the the three most important things that I would be able to give advice on to take away. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. Um, so that's all we have time for today, but I've really enjoyed speaking with you both, Jimmy and Alex. Um, thank you for guesting on Insights and sharing your expertise on criminal law in practice and in academia. Thank you for listening to Insights by UNSW Law Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any future episodes.